Hello everybody and welcome to What Would The Smart Party Do? We're back again. There's a special guest lurking in the wings. But first of all, with me as always... Oh no, he's jumped in. <laughs> Say hello, Patrick. He's on the stage. Uh, hello. Hello, Patrick. <laughs> we're going to put away bows for the minute then. We've got Patrick Stewart with us. Famed author of OSR games, I believe we can call him. Uh, and also uh, about to start with a Kickstarter. We'll get that into a little minute. I can see Baz is, is crying salty, salty tears now because I've not introduced him yet. But how are you doing, Baz? Yeah, I'm all right. Thanks, mate. I mean, the other wings. Should I come on? <laughs> like the, we'd be like the Bee Gees concert or something. You could start off singing in the middle and we'd just approach from either side. Stage left and stage right. Yeah, it's beautiful. I've got a, a wonderful mental map of what's happening now. <laughs> Theatre of the mind, mate. That's what that is. You wouldn't know it. <laughs> no need for floor plans here. <laughs> So, we did speak to Patrick uh, uh, about a year ago at Dragon Meat, but only got a brief flyby as we were rushing around the stalls. So we thought about time, we got him on to talk about what he's been up to. A lot of other podcasts, Patrick, do the whole thing where they say, how did you get into gaming and all that, but we find that a little bit boring. So to be different, what we do is start from the present day and work backwards. Um, so, currently, you are actually uh, putting something together. You've got, uh, it seems like a, another large piece of work has, has to happen when you get writing. Uh, I have any, I have like a whole bunch of things that are just vaguely happening, and I have one big project that has been going on for a long time, and is currently reaching the point where we are hoping to run a Kickstarter around November or December of this year, and that's a project called Silent Titans, which I'm doing with Christian Kessler and Dirk Tietwell Lecce, which I hope I've got his name right. Uh, an artist from, I think, Canada or North America, I'm not sure. Oh, I'm glad you pronounced it, because I was going to struggle there. I'll just let you get it wrong. <laughs> All right. So, um, that, now if you'll forgive me saying so, this game seems a little bit, or book even, seems a little bit weird, but in a good way. The art's off the wall, the writing seems like it's a, a subject that's perhaps a little bit different than most games. What would be your elevator pitch for Silent Titans? <laughs> that's a big problem, isn't it? We, we try to make everything as original as possible, and this game in particular is meant to be something that uh, you could pick up and run in one go, and then we made it. We made it a really weird game. Okay, uh, let me see how I, I can get. In an uh, ancient time-lost version of the Rural Peninsula, uh, it's made from land piled upon sleeping titans, like the ones that were killed at the beginning of the Greek myths. Uh, and the dreams of these titans are leaking out and poisoning reality and messing everything up. And so people need a bunch of rogues or adventurers to go down inside under the ground into the minds of these sleeping creatures and steal their thoughts to send them back to sleep. And their thoughts, handily enough, are actual literal gold. So that's the basic idea. Uh, there are other elements that come into it, but that's currently my ele elevator pitch. That sounds cool. So it's it's a, almost like you're trying to keep elements of initial old-school gaming, as in terms of you go to engineering and get gold, but just do something completely different with it. Is that... Yeah, it's it's very... The basic engine is very trad. It's based on Chris McDowell's Into the Odd, which isn't a traditional rule set, but it's like the base... What Into the Odd does really, really well, and what I like it for is it does uh, dungeoneering and simple adventuring very simply, very effectively, with a lot of, like, simple but elegant rule sets. So I've always been a big fan of that ever since it came out. And one of the ideas I had ages ago was, hey, we've got all these big OSR adventures, and uh, they're massive, and you can, they hand out these, like, fancy any bait books with, like, hardbacks. So we've got those, and the difference between handing out an adventure and handing out an adventure with the rules included is basically zero, but no one really wants to do it or no one has done it. So long ago I had like the brilliant idea, like why don't we do an adventure but put rules in it so it's like a whole game, and if you're at a con or you're meeting someone who's never played D&D &D before, you can say here is a whole thing, and you can pick it up and use it and play it straight away, and you could integrate the character generation and the treasure and stuff so that it was just one one object, and that eventually turned into the beginnings of Silent Titans. 
So you, you, your regular game, if you get sort of a brand new game, will have uh, all of the system, all of the setting, and it might include an intro adventure. Are you just reversing that and having having an adventure with an intro game in it? Basically, yeah. That's a yeah. pretty good example of it. It's a full adventure, and it's started for Into the Odds. You can probably hack it for almost any old school set, like you can across most of the um, the family. But it's got the rules for Into the Odd in it, and it's got specific character generation. Um, you might, I might put in a bit of advice at the back about, you know, there isn't, there is a bit in there about expanding the game, and doing other things, and developing your own your own world after the results of whatever happens in Silent Titans. So yeah, adventure with the rules included is probably the best framing of it. Are they? Uh, is it? Is it done sort of jam sandwich style, where all of the rule stuff is is in one place, or is it threaded throughout and you discover it by play? It's into the odd. Is the basic rules are like two sheets of A4, so it's That's jam true. sandwich, yeah. <laughs> and other stuff comes up uh, basically through stats. And because like most OSR adventures have fancy, can I say bullshit? They have fancy yeah. gubbin, uh, fancy uh, bullshit. Like so. It, but they're interlocked into the structure of the adventure in the imagined world. So there's like a fancy navigation system because these titans are dreaming and changing the world around them. Uh, there's a way of navigating around where, to begin with, it's almost it feels random. And mm. then as you move around and gather like the connections between places, even though you can never exactly control where you go, the more you learn about it, the more you can influence where you're going. And so what at first seem hopefully seems like a terrifying place where you're always lost, as players pay attention and go from place to place and learn more, it becomes like a still strange but navigable place where they can like make more comprehensive plans and become kind of experts and impress the NPCs with how they're doing. <laughs> so is it similar in any way to any of the sort of story games where players can add elements to it? Or is it purely you've got, the GM's got all the content and sort of like relays that to players as the game goes on? Or is, is there any scope for sort of player invention? It's very trad. It's not uh, so. Yeah, it's like the whole book is just a whole lot of setting information with really beautiful art, and the DM has it and doles out in specific ways. Uh, there's not a lot of player intervention. Mainly, it's like like with most of our stuff, or it's our stuff during character gen. But even then, we have like named characters. So the into the odd rule set spits out this like matrix of possible uh, stats you get, and each of them has like a group of uh, like tools and things attached to them. So, yes. you know, if you get really good stats, you get like a spanner, and if you get really terrible stats, you get like a nine cyber monkeys and a laser sword to balance it out. <laughs> so we've kept that basic idea, but each of these results is actually a full person. Well, not a f- they've got a name, they have like a micro history, and they've all fallen through time from different parallel worlds to end up in this particular spot. And the opening segment of the whole adventure is basically like a, um, they wake up together and they uh, have to find their way out of a dungeon that they're already in, and then they end up in the world. Uh, you don't have to play it like that, because you can hack it, but yeah, it's like... It, Chris actually suggested the idea to me as something he'd been thinking about, and I stole the idea and, and put it in this, but yeah. <laughs> Again, that was meant to make it easy for new people, so it's like, roll some dice, get some stats, here's who you are, and here's the stuff you have, and you can just go straight away. What's uh, What's been, the, uh, what's been the, the the way that you've worked together with Chris on this, apart from just you know talking to him and then pinching his stuff? Are you you're still friends now after that theft? <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> it had like a really long development cycle. So initially, this was something we were going to do as like... The initial idea was we had like four or five people, including uh, I think David McGrogan was going to do it. And we were going to do segments of an imaginary Northwest England and mm. then staple it all together into one book. And basically, me and David went mad on our bets. No one else had the time to do theirs. So, and David and I are quite egotistical, so we both just wrote, like, really intensively. And when we were finished, 
we had these two swollen sections that were really different to each other, and no one else had done that much, so we were like, that was like an awkward moment, we were like, okay, we might have to break this up and do them separately. So David's became like the land of rushes, which is in one of his uh, zines, I think, and I spent even more time on mine and kind of turned it into Silent Titans. And then I spoke to Chris and said, hey Chris, do you mind if I put your rule set in Silent Titans? And he went, uh, okay. And I was like, okay, thank you. <laughs> but I have put in like, I have put in a big interview at the back with him and I'm going <laughs> to tell uh, to draw him in a heroic style so that on the off chance it becomes extremely popular, uh, People will be like, oh, who developed this rule set? Oh, it tells you in the back of the book with like a massive section about him and about how brilliant he is and his intentions for the game. Yeah, we, we've we've covered into the odd a couple of times on this podcast. It's a, it's a bit of a smart party fave, actually. It's good stuff. And, and Chris is a good guy. So he, he deserves he deserves to have more people see his stuff. And I think they probably will with your kit. Your kit sells really well, doesn't it? Uh, I, th- I hope so. I think it will. I'm betting that it will. Uh, but I guarantee nothing. Uh, but like <laughs> I said, it's like, it's a it's a weird confection of things because it's we was like obviously I'm obsessed with making like original worlds, mm. and I had this idea for making something really accessible, and they've kind of those two ideas have just jammed together with Dirk's amazing art mm. to create something which is definitely accessible, but I don't know what ordinary people are going to make out of it. Uh, so we'll see when the Kickstarter starts. Dirk's art is something that needs to be seen, isn't it? It's um, it's, it's obviously not going to go over fantastically well on a podcast, but I'm sure we could put some links in <laughs> in the show. But yeah, you kind of have to imagine it always looks to me like it's drawn on isometric paper with highlighters, and I mean that as a massive compliment. It's it's kind of mind bending stuff. Yeah, he's kind of brilliant. Uh, he started off good, and then as time gone on, has gone on, he's got better. And the only thing we've had to question is he's gone through periods of like. Uh, comprehensible genius and occasional moments of slightly less comprehensible genius. Hmm. So all I did basically was like, "Can you do that?" But like more obviously, it was like, "Oh, okay." Um, <laughs> that's my artistic direction to Dirk. Uh, if you have Instagram where you can access it, he is Dirk with a Vengeance on Instagram, and you can see loads of art from this project and his other stuff, uh, and it is incredible. So I'm confident, and with Christians doing the layout as well, so hmm. I'm pretty confident it's going to look incredible. I'm pretty sure it'll be playable. And I have high hopes for the rest, but we'll find out. Yeah, I'm sure it'll do well, because um, we had Daniel Sell on last week, who's uh, doing a new version of Troika, and that similarly had uh, great art on. So we're, we're, starting, we're starting to do a thing now where we're doing a podcast reviewing art, which is uh, just it's like dancing about architecture. It's exactly the right forum for it. But um, he's he's just like funded and busted a lot of stretch goals. So although it's something that seemed... Like hipster planescape, I think you've uh, kind of referred to it at one point when you were hearing. Yeah, um, but things that are different, I think there is definitely a market for. Because um, if anything, possibly some of the sort of D and D type games are sort of saturated with dungeons almost in terms of normal uh, standard fantasy that's been around since the nineteen seventies. We've kind of had so many iterations of orcs and goblins. It's, it's a market. There's still a market. I think that wants something new that's that's played through things so many times that doesn't seem very familiar. Having something that's genuinely different, I think, whets people's appetites. Yeah, I've gone back and forth on that a lot myself because back when I was starting out, I was very much kind of like, um, uh, kind of an arsehole. I was kind of like, basically obsessed with doing things that were different because they were they were inherently better. And I was I had probably arguably a somewhat condescending attitude towards mainstream D and D and mainstream stuff. And then gradually, as time has gone by, I've just kind of settled out. And I think I did an interview with Bryce Lynch about this, where I was kind of like, I don't think that 
the kind of art punk or alienated or hipster style D&D is really fundamentally better. I think it just serves different personality types. And you can do very classic, not standard, but you can use known quantum in D&D and make it very, very good just by adding like attention or a depth or imagination to things that are familiar. Like, So I think the quality of it probably accounts more from the attention to, given to it, from like the, the vividness and the passion directed to it, more than from being, just being magically original. That said, I am still basically obsessed with trying to invent a new thing with every single thing that I do, so I, hmm. I haven't changed that much. And where's that? Where's that impulse come from? Did it, uh, were you a, were you ever a D and D player or DM that was taking people through White Plume Mountain or Temple of Elemental Evil and just thought I could do that my way, or did it? Was it? What was your vector into D and D? Very first game of D and D I played was back in two thousand and seven. It was fourth edition, okay. I think. Yeah. And I went through the given adventure with it, and the guys I was playing with were kind of average. And then at this, roughly the same time, I started this, this reading blogs. And that was a lot of OSR-related blogs. I thought, well, I can just invent stuff. And then once I started making stuff up, the people I was playing with said the game improved a lot. Uh, <laughs> so I was like, okay, that could work. And then basically, I stayed with 4th edition for just long enough to get alienated from it and <laughs> on a classic OSR path just to go all the way into the OSR. And really, it was more attraction rather than repulsion. I just really liked the people doing really weird new ideas. Mm. I liked the people doing really strange art. I've always been drawn towards that and to those kinds of people. So it was more, and I guess, arguably, I got lucky with the imagination stick when I was young. Not so much with any other like inborn qualities, but maybe I did okay there. And so I kind of got obsessed. I love imagining stuff, and I feel free and like a human being when I'm doing it. And most of my work history is working in like call centers and shops, and being continually low level depressed about everything. And so as soon as I got out of there, I made a deal with myself: I would never, ever, ever want to feel like that again. And mm. I just went as far away from that feeling as possible. And that was basically just to try and, I guess, to imagine as fully and as powerful as I could almost all the time. Mm. So, I mean, finding a role-playing game must have blown your mind, just generally speaking, the, uh, the notion. Did, did you have any notion of RPGs before that, that game in 2007? They kind of seeped into me really slowly. So I had like a... When I was like really young, uh, I was invited to play in like a... I think it was like a cyberpunk game. But I was mm. such like... Um, introverted and weird that I was too afraid to go to someone else's house to play but I kind of found out about them beast by beast by picking up like books here and there and then I think before that maybe in 2005 I picked up a bunch of these Game Chef books these oh, yeah. orange backs so I read a bunch of those and I was kind of like this is weird and interesting and I kind of liked the way it divided things up and then blogs and fourth edition happened around the same time and then I just started key thing that happened really was in 2011 like my girlfriend got me a laptop for my birthday and like two days or three days into that I'd made a blog post because uh, that's what everyone who I knew who I liked was doing and I was like yeah. I can do a blog and I got 11 hits on my blog post Wee. and I turned, I turned to my girlfriend and said look 11 people have read my blog post <laughs> and I tried to hang on to that moment every time something in my kind of quasi writing career changes or if, I t- if something does or doesn't does well or if I get into a drama I remember thinking firstly I remember what it felt like working in a call center. And secondly, I remember what it felt like when like 11 people had read what you'd written, which is like 11 more than it had ever been before. So, yeah. <laughs> we dream of the dizzy heights of 11 listeners. <laughs> <laughs> we'll keep hold of the two we've got for now, I think. So, um, in, in terms of writing settings and, and stuff like that, I think some people struggle with, and I'm certainly too verbose whenever I try and write anything, so I tend to run games more than or anything else. Um, but quite a lot of people seem to want to over-explain what there is in the world. 
I think it was on your blog or somewhere else that I saw um, the term implied setting, which is something I've tried to explain in, in many other words. But for me, that means that there's the stuff baked into the text that comes out and you sort of get a feel for the, the world without actually having a world chapter of this is what the world's about. And um, Do you find that a useful skill in itself? Is that something you aim for rather than having a chapter of this is the history of the world, this is what happened in a very formal style? Uh, it seems to me much more evocative and gameable if all the bits and pieces about the world aren't fully explained, but just peppered throughout the text. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. I don't think I could take credit for that phrasing. I think someone more intelligent than me came up with it. But yeah, implied setting is like it was, was like I don't think I came up with it, was like a basic tool that people were using in blogs around the time I got into them. And I went with it and I would say it's more like we play with it more than anything else. But yeah, like the idea of the OSR, I think, and like most RPG things, is made of people who would like to read a list of things. Like, I think I was talking to David a while ago about in the old Warhammer, the old 40k game, there's like a huge list of guns, and it's there in Cyberpunk as well. And you can just sit there and read a list of guns, but each one has like a particular title, uh, production history, who uses it, and like a dab of information about where it's used. And if you read all the way through, you get like this mosaic of the entire cyberpunk world, which makes sense because it's a game about guns, and you read the gun thing, you get the whole thing. And a lot of OSR stuff is doing that through like monster entries, uh, lists, uh, descriptions of people, like broken down lists of places. In a weird way, some of like the fancier stuff is a bit like weird experimental literary fiction because you're trying to take. I think I described it to someone. Imagine trying to retell Hamlet but from the point of view of just having robbed the characters after you found them dead, and you were trying to rip up, go through their pockets and pick out stuff and work out what they've been up to, and that's kind of what you do with um, part of what you do with a lot of OSR creation. You take this complicated thing, break it down to its gameable, workable stuff, and then bed that into usable text, which is both fun to read initially, but hopefully also something you can use at the table or, or join the game. You've used a, a couple of different methods for, for delivering your writing in that way. Um you've done monster books you've done some setting stuff but it's the adventures that i think you're probably known for so so why why choose an adventure as a way to deliver your creativity is that is that something you've you've made a conscious decision to do let me think think as opposed to for example you know like um here's here's a region of the world that i'm going to explain in my way you've got not just a region of the world but something to do in it quite explicitly, Mm. to interact with. I think I was trying to think of new places to have a a D&D adventure. Like, not just a new land, but a new concept. And there aren't that many, to be honest. Mm. Uh, Once you go through the dungeons and the most common ones, you get into some pretty weird places. And uh, I think I'd read this book by Nick Bostrom called Superintelligence, and at the same time I was walking around the Wirral, which is where I live, and in these weird post-industrial landscapes and it kind of came together in my head over the course of maybe a few days and I wrote this long spiel which is still broadly similar at the front of the book and generally once I've had that basic idea and that vision in my head I base everything else that I'm doing off that and so I just kind of build whatever is needed to make that vision real so Mm. for Veins of the Earth I think I was like I had this vision of nightmare seas and stuff Um, and for Far on the Velvet Horizon I kind of had this idea of dueling scholars and this vast kind of quasi-American place. So basically, I have this powerful idea in my head and it's the thing that I'm most interested in and then I just arrange everything else so that I can fit that and it depends how it comes out. Some, and of course, 
I didn't want to do another monster list because I'd done fire as well, and like half of veins of the earth is like monsters. Mm. Uh, so I wanted to try something new, and I may well want to do kind of like a gazetteer or just like a description of a place for something at some point. But I don't. Uh, yeah, that, uh, that's my best answer. <laughs> it's fine. A rather unclear one. <laughs> no, I think that's fair enough. I think. Um, I'm trying to put something together for our patrons at the minute in terms of a little dungeon and trying to do it in, in the style of just having ideas and putting them in there, but the, the old school sort of part of me is still like bending it into a normal dungeon with, <laughs> with normal things in and uh, it's, it seems really I don't know whether it's just like how your mind works or whatever, but it's how to make things inventive but um, so that other people can consume them as well, so do you ever, do you ever worry about that in terms of all the stuff that you produce and that people perhaps won't get it, or yes. are you producing so many? Oh, nothing. Pretty <laughs> much, pretty, pretty much all the time. Like the front, the start of Maze of the Blue Juicer is like packed full of really, really weird stuff. Mm. And if I was doing that over again, I wouldn't do it that way because I think that book or that dungeon gets better the more you play in it as you get context. You can kind of work out what's all the weird stuff has reasons to be in there. And you can understand it, but initially it's like taking a weird hammer right to the face and nothing makes sense. So I probably wouldn't do that that way again and yeah there's like a mass there's like a fundamental polarity between stuff that's dnd works really well with objects and places and especially with known things um and every known object everything pe- people are familiar with that they can work to understand is something they can use to affect the world so that's like fundamentally good if people know what's going on and if you have known predictable stuff in there on the other hand it also gets very boring and so you really want people to have a that sense of newness and of going genuinely going somewhere new and of seeing something they haven't seen before and that feeling of expansiveness that causes them to investigate and reimagine the world. And that's great, but if you're dumping a lot of very, very strange stuff on people, firstly, people have very varying levels on which how much weird they want, and secondly, how do they use it? So, yeah, there's a big tension in everything I do between my desire to be like weird and new and interesting and build something that people can actually work and use and different, I guess, different products I've made go back and forth across there differently, depending on how I'm feeling at the time. Yeah, I found that I've uh, I found with a with a, a bunch of different stuff that I tend to just pull off the shelf or buy. I'm attracted by by weird exploration. D and D does that better than anything, I think, and that's kind of one of the main reasons that I love playing it so much is just to go out there and be a tourist in somebody else's imagination and have it breed with mine as well. But there has been some stuff recently, um, which is. It, it's, it, there's a tendency to weird for weird's sake and what I found with some players is that they can actually be slightly repelled by it because they're so fearful of anything that's so out of the ordinary they literally don't know how to interact with it um, and maybe that's them maybe that's just a culture of being brought up and having to roll for initiative whenever anything new is described um, mm-hmm. but you know weird is good but it's got to be accessible as well as it's got to draw you in rather than push you away yeah, it's hard to get through the introductory period, and it's hard, especially for people who they've come up through different editions, different game styles, where most things are a fight. Like a thing with a lot of my stuff is that all, almost all of my monsters and NPCs are people. Almost, almost all the NPCs could maybe kill you if things got went bad, and almost all the monsters are things you could talk to and have particular things that they want. <laughs> and so that is based on a style of you meet a weird thing, and you. I'm running a game now with some friends and uh, they were joking with each other and they say when you see a weird demonic creature or a strange monster you don't know what it is always be polite and say hello because Patrick likes them to have a conversation before they try to kill you and so like yeah almost all my things are like that but it, to some extent maybe you can get over it with like framing before you start the game and other stuff I think there are just people there's like a continuum of like 
edgy hardcore hipsters who are like, my orcs have to wear masks and they don't, they want everything to be maximally strange. And there's people over at the other end, and it, you might just have like the state, it might just be a state of mind thing, to be honest. I did ask myself that question a lot. Like, it was a big thought inside me as to like, why are you doing this? Do you, you know, shouldn't, if you want it to be really workable, shouldn't you make stuff that people already know? But I want to make it weird. Are you being weird because egotistical? And I went through it a lot inside me and I just thought, well, you're probably just into weird stuff. There's not much point in fighting against it. You're kind of following your natural inclination. Uh, and they don't have to buy it, so just be who you are uh, yeah. and just try not to be a tool about it. <laughs> so where did, Silent Tyson's as, as an idea, um, what comes first as you're, as you're going through it? Um, is it your ideas which are, then get art set to those ideas? Or we're looking at some of the artwork you've got involved there, is that firing new ideas for you as well? What's the process and to and fro if there is any? For Silent Titans, I did almost all the writing before any art was done wow. because okay. yeah. um, that's just the way it worked out because like, it got developed over so many times it took time to find like an artist and a layout guy. Uh, so I did a lot of writing and then I brought Christian on and Christian was like, are we going to finish this? And I was like, I'm nearly done, nearly done, I'm nearly done, I'm nearly done, I'm nearly done, I'm nearly done. And like a year ago, I was like, okay, well, I'm done. And Dirk started drawing a bit before I was finished, and he's just finishing now. Okay. Uh, so they've spent like a year dealing with my 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 ridiculous thoughts. So I did the writing. We did a bit of an edit on it. Christian worked out how the layout's going to work, and then Dirk started drawing. And then I think they're they're like combining forces to move mm. things around and make sure things are where they're meant to be. But different projects have been on have had different relations of art. So Maze Zach did the art, and then I mm. did some writing. Then he edited it. Uh, far in the Velvet Horizon, that literally went back and forth between me and Scrap with her, just giving me drawings and me writing stuff and then them being changed a bit. Veins was more like Silent Titans in that I wrote and then mainly she filled in and then we did a little bit of alteration. Mm. Writing and doing art at the same time is really, can be very rewarding, but in organisational terms it's an effing nightmare. Unless you've got a very talented person who you know well and who's willing to work for free for a long time and communicate with you intimately, and then you get to work out the layer afterwards. But mm. you, it helps if you're friends and it helps if you're close. Because if you're doing it in a business way, you're basically getting this artist and saying, "We're going to pay you for something at some point, and also I want you to feed off my writing, and also I want to see your ideas first. And that's going to be very difficult unless you have like a pre-existing like relationship and you and you're on roughly the same like level financially speaking. Because uh, I don't know, it would be hard to do as part of a business or an organization. I think. Yeah, and um, the way that Kickstarter works as well, often with a Kickstarter you'll see the text is ready, and they'll say that right at the bottom of the Kickstarter, mm-hmm. and your money is going to be paying for art. Yeah, but That's almost like the traditional way. So if you've got that just about done, and the Kickstarter's not even not even hit the interwebs yet, you, you, you're trading on a lot of goodwill there, I guess. Yeah, and with OSR stuff as well, layout takes uncounted aeons because there's it, we all want really good layout because we're mildly obsessed with it mm. and there's like five or six people who are exceptionally good at it and there's a massive backlog and you don't have any money <laughs> so you want to pay this person with a rare talent to work on something for a long time and then uh, and it's going to take ages. Anyone doing a Kickstarter for any kind of OSR project tells you layout is going to be done soon. It won't be. Layout is never done soon. Uh, you you will need to get yourself mummified and a bigger tomb, and then you can wake up in a couple of millennia uh, to to get to check the layout. Basically, yeah. we don't, we don't talk enough about layout artists, and and in the field that you work as well, how how the text is presented mm-hmm. is 
is right up there with what the text is and what picture it's next to um, or not next to as the case may be that layer I mean that's a real skill isn't it and I think a lot of people think all you've got to do is press a button on word and it will turn it into a textbook for you it's a really real skill and I got really lucky with Christian because he's a very talented guy who was willing to work for like a third of the project Mm. without any payment down and it's a really difficult skill to communicate about because the language about it is very um, sparse yeah. And it's very, if you have like a layout issue with someone and you're trying to take them do something, it's very much like just going more like this or that. And some people have like a natural grasp for how text and form can go together into an informational block. A layout person is doing like so many complicated things just in terms of like imagining how people are playing the game and trying to get everything they need onto one spread mm. and also thinking about stuff like the aesthetics of it and also thinking about how it's going to integrate and also thinking about how like the general form works as a whole that's really really challenging and there isn't a lot written about it and there's, it's very hard like you develop a language with people as you go along a kind of a, a shorthand uh, but yeah very few people are very good at it immediately I'm sure there'll be more people trying and it's not really well rewarded enough by the general culture so again mm. that creates a, a, a kind of a backlog or a, a host pipe effect when I first introduced you I meant to say of course any award winning Patrick's chair oh yeah I forgot <laughs> or zero gold ennies zero <laughs> gold ennies Patrick the, the, the bitterness of my, my golem mess screeching for the, <laughs> the illusory gold any which if I, if I were to ever get it would immediately not count anymore and I would want something else to fulfill like the void in my soul but yeah zero gold ennies <laughs> But but he's been re- been recognised nonetheless with a, a, a plethora of silvers. Yeah, I'm I'm being extremely churlish and I am being mocking of myself. <laughs> no, it's not like the the awards that I got were like minimal. Sure, of course. But I find that quite interesting because at one point the Ennies were just old D and D awards, and you might as well not have had Ennies to be honest. But it seems we're living certainly the last sort of two or three years when there's been awards that um, small press games get as many plaudits almost as some of the big boys do. So it seems certainly from uh, an audience participation point of view anyway or a popularity vote that the sort of things that you produce and others like yourself seem to be equally as popular as mainstream D&D even if D&D is always going to sell far outsell everything else that is on the market from uh, just a, a pure uh, value point of view as people see the worth of the games you're right up there right? Yeah not many people well a fair amount of people buy them but a lot of people vote I think I think there was like a lot of big pushes in the past few years for OSR people linking to each other and saying, you know, vote for this, vote for that. And I don't know how it happened, but yeah, it became quite a powerful vote, especially at the last year's Ennies, I think. Not last year's, this year's Ennies, where I wasn't there. Um, apparently it was like a really big deal. Uh, and I don't know what the Ennies committee thinks of that. Opinions, there are lots of mutterings and vague vague stirrings on the internet about what is happening and what it means and what it doesn't mean. Uh, but yeah. Uh, it seems to be doing very well for now. I'm assuming, like all things, it will change, or there'll be some new form of game, and I'll be a decrepit old man, like uh, <laughs> muttering about the new whatever young people are up to. But yeah, it is it's very big in that particular format. Did you get a chance when you went to America to kind of chat to some of the other, I'm calling them big boys, but you know the the, the sort of Watsies or I don't know any of the big corporations and kind of chat about games and how they got on, other award winners, or were you just like overwhelmed with your own glory at that point? Uh, I was overwhelmed with uh, not glory, but just stress. I think I shook Ron Edwards' hand. Uh, I didn't have, didn't know what to say to him. I think, don't think he knew who I was. I think he came to the Lamentations booth and said, "I really like what you fellas are up to." And I was like, "Okay." And he said, "I'm Ron Edwards." And I was kind of like, "I know that you're someone, right?" But I think he was hoping to meet James or Zach, and I was the only one there. <laughs> yeah, and I kind of I, I was I was trying to be complimentary. 
And I think I met Ken Height as well, but I don't remember anything that I said to him. I'm sure I met people at the Ennies. It's kind of a blur, because I was having like a meltdown because of the crowds and the intensity of the situation. But I don't remember any useful information I gleaned from them, I'm sorry. I probably <laughs> should try and network more, that's what people are, that's what we meant to do, but I uh, I had had enough, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> so um, you were so at la- the time you were there, that would have been for veins of the earth if we follow our timeline backwards. So yeah, it, it might be a bit weird to be speaking about that. Does that sound? Does that feel like a long time ago to you when you were had your head down over your laptop writing veins of the earth? Yeah, I mean, it took a long time to write. And it took a really long yeah. time to lay out. So let me see, what was I doing? Yeah, I was like several jobs ago. I think that was one of the last things I did before I quit my long-term job and then just did part-time stuff in this. And I remember writing Veins of the Earth on buses and trains to Witness. Mm-hmm. I think it was Witness where I had like a job in a call centre in the winter. So a lot of the monsters in there are stuff that I imagined while I was on a bus pressing my head against like the the black... You know, if you're travelling somewhere in the really early morning in the winter, mm. everything outside is completely black and there's these little dots of light showing you the only islands of civilization. Uh, and so, yeah, a lot of stuff I imagined in the office when I wasn't meant to be imagining stuff, or on the bus, <laughs> or on the train. You're not allowed to imagine. <laughs> yeah, because, well, not really. I mean, I had, like, a late shift, so I would be going there sometimes early morning and coming, or sometimes coming home really late, and the trains would always be slow, so I'd be going through, like windows to Liverpool and like this really slow train that was chugging along and having this notebook in my hand and scribbling weird ideas down. But yeah, you know you're not meant to, you've never had, you've had office jobs. You're not meant to be caught imagining. You don't even like you reading sometimes. Even there's nothing to do. You'll sit there at the phone and I'll say, oh, books away, like magazines away because the manager's coming through. It's like, there's nothing else we could be doing. But yeah, they, they they want your mind on the job even when there's nothing to do. And and that, that made you think of Massive underground caverns and sunless seas, and what happens when you get pulled into the cracks of the earth. And I think when we spoke to you at Dragon Meet, you were you were pretty much on your knees at that stage. You said, "Don't ever, don't ever let me write books like that again." Yeah, <laughs> I think it, it was a fairly traumatic birth of a book, was it? It was too big, really. Um, mm. I got carried away, and because like it was so big, and because it had so much weird writing in it, and because it was, had like a lot of informational trouble trouble a lot of informational density it's like two main problems with it were that it took a really long time to lay out and the layout process probably took as long as it took to write Mm. which was a very stop start process which i was kind of like quite neurotic about and then because it's massive the market's in america and it gets printed in finland so it costs it weighs enough to kill a burglar which is handy but also means that there's a pay like the postcode, po- like the postage to get it to the u.s means it's really hard for americans to buy which is maybe not a great idea if you're primary market is trans uh, transoceanic uh, so yeah after it came out and it was really popular in that exact moment as it came out everyone else was like hey this is really great and I was just kind of like oh ho, 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 ho. this is terrible but uh, like reactions have evened out since then and I'm uh, yeah <laughs> can you give us um, a couple of years later can you give us an objective pitch on you know if um, because I'm sure some of our listeners won't know what veins of the earth is and uh and it won't have to come very far from Finland to get to us in the UK, so it might be worth giving, hitting a little sales pitch. What, what is Veins of the Earth for the uninitiated? It is a procedural method of driving a kind of an underdark-like environment for Oswald D&D, with included about, it's also half a bestiary of 50 original monsters, each of which are written in the style you described, in that they describe the monster and part of the world around them, and they have like an inferred environment and like uh, past 
So it's a giant wadge of creative energy, hopefully, with strong themes of uh, madness and cannibalism and lots of boutique rules that are designed to be very, very simple and mm. modular, so you can take them apart and put them back together, not use them or not use them, and in almost any proportion, I still get a pretty reasonable game out of them. And it's designed for Lamentations of the Flame Princess, but you can combine it with pretty much everything, anything similar to that. Cool. I should point out, I think you said boutique rules. I heard booty crawls, which booty, is... Uh, that might... <laughs> That, I cannot guarantee that takes place in Fate of the Earth. <laughs> a weird kind of Dungeons and Dragons session. Let it make a booty crawl. Uh, <laughs> I'm have to stop you looking at your DVD collection while we're having these interviews, but it's uh, really influencing the question. <laughs> it's old school, it's VHS. Laser disc. So given that um, that was a bit of um, a journey, shall we say, getting, getting that product released, in the meantime, have you done like smaller things or are, are you sort of like convinced to doing smaller items? Or do you find when you start writing that you just can't stop yourself? Uh, both. Since then, I've tried to make much smaller things, but that was like I haven't really succeeded in that. So I've got one massive project, which is roughly the size of Veins or even bigger, which is called Broken Fire Regime, which is kind of a quasi sequel to Deep Calm Observatory, and that's been in development hell for a long time. But hopefully, will be coming out maybe 2020 or late 2019. But yeah, yeah, that was another thing where I just kept writing and writing and writing. And I was like, no, I have to get this part right. No, I have to get that part right. Like, it won't make sense until all like I'm finished. No, don't worry. It'll, everything will be clear once I'm done. And then basically had like a complete meltdown over it and put it aside for a long time. And then I've gone back to it. So hopefully Jacob Hurst will bring that out after he brings out uh, DCO2 in like fancy hardcover. Uh, but that will take a while and it will be massive. And I'm sure the Kickstarter will be uh, gargantuan. And it might be a giant white elephant, but again, you've never seen anything quite like it. <laughs> you told us to tell you to not do that anymore. Yeah, I, I promise. Don't Silent let time, you. <laughs> I think I did Veins of the Earth, and I was writing Broken Fire Regime, and then stopped, and then Silent Titans is shorter than Broken Fire Regime. It's only 108 or so 84 pages, and that's with art included. And then I have like some micro-projects, which have been relatively slow, but they're going to be like really small booklet things. Uh... So those might be coming out over the next year, I don't know. Hmm. Cool. So you mentioned Deep Carbon Observatory. So is it okay if we skip back to that a bit? Um, yeah. I'd, I love that adventure. I, I've bought it many times to give to people um, who poo-poo the idea of like innovation in, in the granddaddy of role-playing games. Um, I think it's a lovely, lovely, lovely thing. Where did that come from? Because it seems to be running through your stuff like a vein even now if you're talking about DCO2 and maybe sequels and so on. Um, what was the genesis of Deep Carbon Observatory? I was having that idea around the same time I was doing the uh, the research of Veins of the Earth and Zarchov, I think, was I researching it? I think I was doing very preliminary research, just vague book buying. And Zarchov Kowalski was like, hey, do you want to do an adventure? I'll pay you like a few hundred dollars. I was like, that's amazing. You're going to pay me to do an adventure? And then it was meant to be relatively short, and as always, I massively overwrote. And I think there's a writer called Richard Forty who writes about geology a lot. And I read a bunch of his books, and they're very much about deep time and the history of the Earth. And that had a big effect on me. And I wanted to create an adventure where everything about it was about creating this sense of deep geological time and making the players feel it. And so I was trying to work out how to do that. I came up with the idea of like an underground observatory, and then it's in like a giant pit, how does that work? And then I kind of procedurally generated everything out to make sense of this 
everything leading up to and increasing the sense of going deeper and deeper and deeper, like psychologically. Mm. And that's where that basic idea came from. I think I got a lot of the vague structure of it. It's a lot like James Raggi. Uh, they call them Nega Dungeon Adventures, where it's mm. like there's a build and a build and a build and a build, and it's really rough, but nothing but. And then you get to the end, and everything seems fine. It's like, oh no, this giant monster's going to eat you. So it's kind of a lot like a bit like the God that crawls, or a little bit like um, Death Frost Doom in that, but hopefully not too, not too much for a rip off. Yeah, the thing that um, that, uh, that most of the people who I speak to about this, they remember more than that. Probably, I don't know if this has surprised you at all. It's just the opening scenes with the flooded village. It's a cracking opening. If it was a movie, you'd be sold in five minutes. People really like that, and the reason it exists in its current form is because I had I was talking to Scrap about doing the art, and I had this really ridiculously overblown idea. I was like, I want to do like a Dorian Kindersley picture of like disaster, and the players will like walk the way through it. And she was like, No, I'm, I'm not drawing that. And I was like, <laughs> Okay, uh, what else can I do? And I just racked my brains for some way to get this through, and I thought use like the flow of the flood as like because the river the water's all going in one direction so if you're following the people or the water it carries you there anyway so i came up with this like matrix network thing of like encounters where you're facing these terrible situations and maybe you can help a bit some of the time uh but you know you can't stop everything and so that has kind of like um a tragic choice situation where even if you're doing your level best you're gonna have to watch some terrible things happen but that doesn't mean you sh- it's pointless because you genuinely can save some people. And if you do nothing, then everyone gets hurt. So it's like an inversion of the kind of standard D&D thing where you can always save the day. It's more like you can save part of the day for some people, but things are pretty scary for it still. Yeah, that sounds like my kind of adventure. <laughs> just just generally. <laughs> Although no, it, it does upset some people. I've got a good friend of ours, Bez, really doesn't like that. He kind of looks at it in terms of he wants to know whether to pick apples or oranges. And then when I tell him it's bananas, he gets really upset because he kind of wants the what's <laughs> the, no, the, the optimal choice yeah the positive outcome all the time so how you found other people's work then? Is, there, is there anything out there at the minute you think that inspires you or do you think is interesting or are you just obsessed with your own writing currently uh, I think Scrap's doing something called Plain Scrap which you know Scrap Princess who does the art mm-hmm. for DCO and for Vince of the Earth and for, like, for Fire and the Velvet Horizon she is has for a long time been creating this her version of Planescape which is just doing an entirely new Planescape based on her art and her ideas and I've seen bits of it and it's taken a long time to come together but I think she's going to start bringing it out pretty soon and I'm really looking forward to that other nerd stuff has basically oh I backed Troika so I think it had Daniel Salon like a few days ago mm-hmm. so I'm interested yeah, yeah. to see what what that's going to look like, and it's going to be like a nice fancy hardback. Other stuff, I am have recently got back in. Does Warhammer count? Yeah. Because, uh, I've been getting back into 40k with Kill Team recently, and I've been looking at this. They have a section in White Dwarf called Blanchitsu. Where yeah. They have a lot of modelers and painters making these amazing models in the John Blanche style. And so I've been following these people on Instagram who do this kind of weird mixture of gothic art, kit bashing, painting and world creation. There's people called Iron Sleet, if you look for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a guy called uh, Magos Buer, uh, Helg William Dahl, uh, and someone called The Empyrean on on Instagram. And these guys are taking like Warhammer and almost producing like Baroque art from it. So they're my current like aspirational figures who I'm trying to <laughs> one day... I've always had like a, a thing for sculpture and for small sculptures in particular. I did like a whole series on them for a, uh, which got collected by this website which was based on this guy writing about sculpture and me trying to apply that to Warhammer miniatures. But yeah, I'm kind of obsessed with the Iron Sleep uh, 
dark Age of Sigmar kind of uh, I, those guys and trying to work out if I can ever be good enough with green stuff to make something as excellent or with painting as to make something like that. Even though my own style of painting, as much as I have one, is very like primary colour, comic booky, hyper bright, sharp, sharp edged as much as I can get it, but I'm still like kind of gazing at the back of White Dwarf every month and looking at Instagram <laughs> thinking, why can't I do that? Someone just took like half of an Imperial Titan and turned it into an entirely new character in like five minutes with some glue and it looks amazing. Why can't I be like that? Yeah, yeah I, I get. I take loads of inspiration from that. Um, Warhammer is a big part of my life, always has been for various reasons. Paid the mortgage for a long time. That was helpful. Um, <laughs> but it, Games Workshop these days as well, in recent years, very recent years, have massively re-engaged with the community and they yeah. are they're putting out so many models i was talking to a friend of the show matt the other day who um it's one of the directors of steamforge games and uh, and he was talking to somebody else and the story went that if you want to try and keep up with what games workshop are doing right now you'd be sinking three or four hundred pounds into the hobby every month and there is no way even as a full-time painter you could paint everything that's coming out and the choice is is enormous and um, just as you think I'm not going to get Kill Team, they do Rogue Trader. And just as you think I'm not going to do that, Necromunda drops some more models. And it's madness at the moment, but in a really good way. Yeah, it's been a crazy renaissance with them. I remember they had like, um, it's literally like your, I always used to think of Games Workshop as your ex-boyfriend who like, was really abusive, but had great models. <laughs> yeah. And so you people would be like, why are you going back to him? And you're like, you don't understand the models are too good, but you don't like, like him. It's just like, it's like a toxic relationship. <laughs> and then at some point like a few years ago they had like a shift in management and it's like they've gone to rehab and they've come out all bright and springy like hey mm-hmm. they're, like some, like, they're still, still a bit creepily capitalistic but that's like the nice games workshop who like actually listen to you and care about you and they're doing actual doing new things and it's like what happened to you but yeah I think almost the only major flaw that I've heard from people talking about them is just the amount of stuff and how how are they going to keep it up but it seems to be working through a combination of like maybe some luck and a lot of talent and inspiration they're just producing so yeah. much and I'm wondering yeah. if they're going to find a way to push outside of the standard Warhammer fan or not maybe they might it might be a combination of cultural changes interpenetration and people just being more chilled about stuff but it might explode I don't, I don't know uh, yeah it's been fascinating to watch like the, the nice games workshop yeah I mean one of, one of the new types of people they're reaching out to is like you know my wife or as I like to call it a woman so you know they're, they're getting included in the conversation these days, which wasn't true for a very long time. So there's a demographic. <laughs> yeah, I remember I was there with you in the bad old days, wasn't that bad? When at Preston, we were trying to uh, recruit a new manager, and one of the people who came in was of these one of these legendary women that you speak of, and we were very strictly told by the area manager that that wasn't going to happen, even though they seemed like a perfectly nice person and all mm-hmm. of it. So it was just, it was policy back then in the dark days, but yeah, thankfully we've come yeah. through that now and. Actual policy, really? Oh yeah, Oof. yeah. They didn't write it down because they didn't want you know someone taking that to a list or anything. But yeah, you were told by upper management, don't do it. Wow, I did not know that. <laughs> yeah, so yes, they are. They got the female Sigmarines or Stormcast now, and they're producing like a. I think they because they listen to the base, right? There was like a small group of people, not a small group, but people who were saying, "Why don't you do more female figures when you do sisters mm-hmm. in plastic?" And they back in the old days, they just never really listened to anything anyone said. Yeah. And as the the less they listened, the more toxic the community became, and you had like this kind of like very messed up dynamic. And now they're having, the, yeah, they're reintegrating. It's kind of fascinating and interesting. Yeah, I mean, you credit where it's due. The stuff they're doing now is great, really, really good, and and it feeds it feeds into 
wider hobby stuff as well i mean it's an interesting point is um do you use minis in your gaming in your role-playing gaming never Weird. uh <laughs> since the, since that fourth edition game back in 20 whatever i uh we had like little minis we didn't really use them in the game i bought them as kind of a memento of the game for everyone but no i i play mainly online and occasionally in person and in every mm. case we use theater of the mind or we just do sketch maps uh I never use minis because yeah, it's strange. Even though I've got them here, I'll play Kill Team. Played mm. a game of that a while ago, and that's very close to being an RPG. Mm. Oh, another thing that I was going to talk about as a nerd thing that's happening is the new Wrath and Glory RPG came out, yeah. and initial reports on G Plus were like, "Oh, it's a, it's a story game. Oh, look out!" And a lot of people in those threads were saying, "Maybe we can make an OSR version of like a Warhammer. If it is, does turn out to be a story game, maybe we can make an OSR." version of like the of Warhammer RPG and I think a lot of people like five or six are going off in different directions produce trying to produce like rule sets that might wow. account for something like that. So there's this thing called the Dollar a Stroke by Emmy Allen who you may have may have heard of, uh-huh. which I haven't had a chance to read through because I've literally got a stack of PDFs on the side of my laptop here. Uh but that's like a, a skirmish level war game for knights and ladies, which I think you can also use with Warhammer forty thousand. And various other people I think are messing around with the idea. I think I had the idea myself a while ago of doing like um, Warhammer Knights game where you yeah. play Imperial Knights based on it was like a stripped down version of Mechtion Zeta it wasn't like a proper game it was just something to play at cons it was like a stripped down version of Mechtion Zeta where you get put in your knight and then you have like an OSR style uh, evolved or like uh, generated war zone and you have to go off and shoot baddies in it but yeah, I think a lot of people might be doing stuff vaguely related to that in the OSR in the very near future mm. Mm. yeah cool beans so how do you view um is there is there such a thing as an OSR community? Let, let me put it that way, because there seems to be a certain style of game or way of playing. Perhaps is it is, does OSR really stand for now for like D and D, but a bit weird, or is is that just OSR an unhelpful label that's kind of still hanging around from from ten years ago? Perhaps everyone who's in OSR would have a different opinion. And basically, the way I see it is, there's a bunch of like related archipelagos. So there's people who wrote like Dragon's Fall, people who are really into following Gary and investigating old rule systems and then there's other people that come along the part that I'm sort of connected to I kind of refer to, I used to refer to it as hipster douchebag D&D because they're a bit like that now I think more new said call it just art punk D&D but that's just one segment of it and to be honest another thing I was saying recently is I don't really want there to be one thing that it is, I don't want to be in a situation where you can actually be kicked out or there's anyone in charge or where you have to ask to come in, so basically the OSR as a term is the vaguest possible thing, and I would say at least anyone trying to use rule sets related to the older editions of D&D, all ones derived from that, and apart from that, it basically depends on who you want to hang out with. Uh, and because it's kind of an anarchist community, you can spend time with whoever you like, whichever political affiliation you like, and you're free to not interact or to interact with anyone however you wish, and there are no absolutely strong rules about what it does or doesn't mean. That's my preference, and that's roughly how I think it is right now. Yeah, that sounds good. That's probably the clearest view of it I've got, I think. One of one of our other friends of the show, Ian McAllister, has just written a, a blog post up actually about um, uh, Ameritrash and Euro games because he's into the big board game scene. And uh... he, he basically put a bit, not quite a rant, but a thing up there saying, like, why do we use these two terms? Because all they're doing is, certainly in the terms of Ameritrash, making some board games sounds like they're trash, and they're not. And it's kind of a label that gets applied to to that particular type of game and I think throughout gaming there's lots of different levels like that that people start using as a lazy shorthand and then it can, can sort of drive a little bit of tribalism or 
I don't know. Perhaps we need to talk a little bit more amongst ourselves to, to understand what people are into rather than trying to label things. Don't know what point I'm trying to make there, but I think like a major thing with almost anything on the internet, especially in the last twenty years, has been this identity creation. I think whatever we had with society before is changing and shifting, and I think one of the main things that people want from that internet connection is a sense of some kind of new sense of community or some kind. Of, I think people are shaping their identities with like interesting and intuitive, complex ways with the things they're into online. And I think like some of the OSR is definitely part of that. And there is a bit of tribalism, depending on who you speak to. Between like there are people who are like, uh, like I, I think even within my game that I'm running. So my friend Sam is like completely ha- happy playing with story gamers. He's like I was playing the story game a few days ago, and he'd like come over and play with us like secretly or occasionally. <laughs> and then there's people like me who are like I don't hate story games, but I don't really feel any need to play them, and I don't know much about what's going on with those guys. And then maybe yeah, there's a few others who just don't want anything to do with them uh, ever at all. And there's like yeah, there's a range of like I don't think there's anyone who hates them. But again, there's different people want to interact with different groups across different scales, and generally, broadly speaking, as long as it's not wrathful or contemptuous, I'm pretty fine with people just deciding where they want to hang out in that spectrum. Yeah, I think that's fair, and it, it, it goes for the same for what sort of games you want to play as well, doesn't it? You can yeah. play anything you want to, to be honest. And uh, certainly, I play a variety of games depending on what mood I'm in. So it's like more variety is good, more power to everyone. If you've got different styles of things we can all have a go at, that's just better for the community as a whole. To be honest, like a few years ago, I was playing like uh, a bunch of story games, and I kind of dropped out. Of it. I think I ran Apocalypse World for a, few, a while, and that went pretty well. And then since then, since I started making stuff, I've just got sucked more and more into OSR standard techniques. And I think part of the reason is because they feed into world creation or situation creation so well, and that's something that I really like doing. And they're all intra modular, and so because I really like imagining stuff, it provides like a very solid skeleton to imagine stuff and have people snap it into place with their own things very easily. I think that's part of the reason that I got like so absorbed by it. Mm. Although, although people have said that Silent Titans is like, in some ways on the border of being an indie game, because it's like a really specific situation, it's quite fancy and weird, and it does this one thing really well, so it kind of they've, I think they, I can't tell if they were boarding with me, or being serious, like, isn't this kind of like an indie game, Patrick? And I was like, uh, <laughs> uh, I suppose it is. Yeah, but they were right, it kind of is. That was one of the first questions I asked you earlier, wasn't it? Because it's the way we describe it, it sounded a little bit like it could be a story game, or it lent itself yeah. to that sort of thing. So, not that we're, we're labelling anything these days. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and, and to be honest, everyone has like a completely different idea of what story games are. I had this like big thread on my blog of like, what do you think of this? And everyone was using a version based on their gaming history and their experience with different forums. And all those versions of what a story game was really different. For me, it's mainly narrative control mechanisms and stuff that's vaguely like Apocalypse World. But for other people are like, you can't even really call Apocalypse World a story game. It's this particular thing. It's like everyone's got like a different picture in their head of what they're talking about. So I th- one thing, another thing I try to do whenever I talk about games is to ban uh, theory talks so no one can use words <laughs> or concepts from game theory because none of them make sense past like the first few sentences and you just end up with people arguing about what simulationist means so it's like give, give me a real life example of what you're talking about and don't don't say anything that could come from a game theory book I think the label that's probably lost if it ever had it at all well actually I think it did have it well but the label that's really lost all meaning is indie and, that's um, true it falls out of your mouth very easily sometimes doesn't it and and you know you're indie I'm yeah, exactly. Indie. Gaz is indie. I mean, there's nothing more independent than than anyone who's producing stuff off of their laptop and a and a print run and a Kickstarter. That's as independent as it gets. Outside of Watsy and Paizo and maybe Fantasy Flight, we're all indie. Um, yeah. 
but then that covers everything from from a story game about like you know uh, with magnetic fish as a resolution mechanic to uh to the new edition of cyberpunk probably yeah, when I think of indie, the thing that comes to mind is someone kind of like uh, Magpie Games or Jason Cadova, or kind of like the nice bearded story gamer who's like, got a game about your emotions, mate, but an interesting dice mechanic. That's what I think of, but you're right, it is yeah. kind of almost all of like the entire thing you could describe. Definitely you could describe what we're doing as indie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's the, uh, what's the scene like in the UK uh, at the moment? It looks to me like it's flourishing, and quite by accident we seem to be having a series of interviews at the moment with UK uh, with UK designers, um, what's it feel like from from your end? I think it's doing well. I don't get out there much, but I go to like local <laughs> game club, and I know that Warhammer's doing well. We've got like a Pathfinder game on there, and I know that there are in Liverpool at least five years ago, ten, six years ago, there was like one place you could play D- play RPGs that wasn't the University Club, and it was this place called the Liverpool War Games Association, which still exists, mm. and it was in a basement behind the gay centre of Liverpool. So you would go through like the gay center, like the the gay like whatever like the gay area, past all like the rainbow flags, and then you'd go down a little alleyway, and then you'd go down some steps, and you'd enter this tiny basement, and there would be like these guys with beards who are still there. Hi, Andrew, if you're listening. Um, and they would you would play Call of Cthulhu with them, and then you'd come out, and if you'd come out really late, you might see someone like having like impromptu sex in the alleyway. Um, and now there's like uh, two or three or four places where you can play Warhammer, you can play RPGs, you can play board games. It's really kind of bubbled up from the surface. Yeah, there's a lot of places where you can do it. I think it's growing quite a bit. And again, I think a part of the big reason is uh, community yeah. and doing stuff in real life with people. I think it's like people want those shared, what are they called, third spaces. Which none of them, none of these exactly are because you often have to pay to go in. But like spaces where you're not at work, you're not necessarily drinking and you're doing something that promotes like friendship or relationships in a kind of like in a, in a third space and I think it's part of that is what RPGs and board games have, I think mainly it's board games to be honest and RPGs mm. are kind of coming behind Yeah, so uh, what what does your personal gaming situation look like at the moment when you're, you're not tapping away on your keyboard, you, you've uh, mentioned you've got a gaming group on the go, I mean you know, I'm always fascinated by by what other bands do in practice. You know? <laughs> it's To be honest, writing D&D stuff really kicks the D&D out of you a lot. It does, the, yeah. The, yeah, the yeah, less yeah. I'm writing, the more <laughs> I play. So I have this game I'm running on Sundays for a few people online, and that is uh, based in Sierra Daria, which is based in Dave McGrogan's You and Soon. If you're familiar yeah. with that. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, yeah, it's, yeah. Slugmen we're talking, yeah. Yeah, and uh, that's using Johnstone Metzger's Nightmares Underneath book. So it's basically... The initial idea I had was these people come from the pseudo-Arabian Kingdom of Dreams and they're sent to Seodaria to find these nightmares, which are weirder than anything else that's happened in Yunsun, so they need, like, foreign experts. Uh, and it took them, like, ten sessions to get there, <laughs> but it seemed like it was fun, and it really felt like an epic journey. And now they're investigating nightmares in Seodaria with Johnson Metzger's rule system. Uh, I did have a, I was playing in a game with some people on Saturday, but I had to let it go because I have to do work stuff and just have general sanity time. And then Fridays, I often go to my local game club in Bebbington, where I've played Kill Team a few times, and play. I lose 40k to people because I've only like, only haven't like got, into, got back into that recently. So I just get tabled. I think last time, a rhino blew up in the middle of the game, and my exalted sorcerer suffered powers of the warp twice and was sucked to meet Zinch directly, and I just Ooh. crashed on turn three. It, it was like an it was an epic failure though. So at least it was interesting. <laughs> That's a busy gaming schedule. <laughs> you've got, you've well, got a lot going on. Well, twice a week really is like okay, I think. 
Oh, I, I, I count that as busy. I think mm. anyone listening to this right now will have their own take on whether what yeah. that counts as. I, I have a feeling a lot of people are going, wow, I wish I could play twice a week. I feel bad if I'm not playing because it seems like illegitimate. I remember yeah. I was getting a tattoo and talking about D&D with this guy. And he was like, oh, you make these things. I'm like, yeah. And he says, oh, do you play much? I'm like, at that time I wasn't. I was like, oh, I, I don't really, you know. And he was like, oh, well, how do you make them if you don't play them? And I, was, and I kind of held my head in my hands, invisibly. <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm a fake. So I feel better for being able to play. I feel like I should be playing somehow. Otherwise, mm-hmm. what do I? who the hell do I think I am? Yeah, yeah. And it, and it slows you down a little bit and stops you going going off into worlds of theory, you've got to bring it back to a table and real people. Oh, yeah. Very much so. <laughs> and it's nice to meet people as well. It's, and we have like um, a weird and interesting group of people who will need to get up very early in America and other places to spend time with me on a Sunday morning, so that's nice. Hmm. I think that's the advantage of the challenge we've got now as well, isn't it? I think half the games I've played in the last couple of years have been with someone from Poland or America or somewhere else because it's just yeah. gives you access to so many of the kind of like great creative minds out there that previously would have been inaccessible. So that's that's one bonus of technology at least. And I think it's had a big effect on game design because it's created these communities of thought of people who previously would have been the only person into their thing in a town or a village in Poland or the US. And now, if you have a particular style of game or a particular way of thinking, you can find someone on the internet and so. It's good in some ways because you're connected to a lot of people who think a lot, a bit like you, all over the, all over the world. And in some of the ways, it maybe has a negative effect because perhaps it draws people away from people in their, their spatial or organic communities. And it can definitely have a negative effect too. You get a bunch of people who, like we see this with the internet all the time, people who have really weird specific ideas and they're hanging out and that's good, but they mistake the global reach of their friendship group for being the world. Mm-hmm. And then when you come into contact with the actual real organic world around you, it's like. And it turns out you were just like this tiny, tiny skin of thought on the top of a much more complex reality, which yeah. is the tagline for our show, or will be going <laughs> forward. <laughs> <laughs> Patrick, if people want to know more about your stuff and uh, and find out what's going on with Silent Titans or any of your back catalogue, what's the best way of, of finding you out there? Uh, my main blog is false machine at blogspot.com you go there I update I actually haven't updated this month so I need to do something soon and then I have like an author site uh, which is pjamesstewartwixsite.com but if you type in pjamesstewart with two mm-hmm. s's s-t-u-a-r-t that's the name I use on reddit on uh, facebook everywhere so I'm on like let me see where am I uh, I'm on reddit I'm on facebook I occasionally upload these youtube interviews I'm on instagram just type my name and you'll find something it's not that hard Google will direct you to Star Trek episodes, though. That happens a lot. Yes. Oh, God. S-T-U-A-R-T. This is something I... Every time I spell my name for someone, I've got into a ritual. S-T-U-A-R-T. If you look for that, Patrick Stewart, not the other one. Almost. If you type in Patrick Stewart, S-T-U-A-R-T, RPG, then you'll find me. If you type anything else, he comes up, my nemesis. The other one. Yeah, I mean, Google was like even mocking me earlier because I was I was typing you in to get some information I needed, and he said, "Did you mean Patrick Stewart?" And offered me the other one. It's like, no, I actually mean the RPG guy. Like, you know, Google's trying to force me to go see Jean Luc Picard. If I have children, I'm I'm giving my children really, really insanely unique names, so they're the only <laughs> ones, and they never have to be searched for under someone else's name. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure everyone's going to be doing that in like twenty years because. Having an individual searchable name is like the most valuable thing possible. Probably, yeah, probably. 
Okay, well, it's been brilliant to speak to you, Patrick. I think we're up for time, unfortunately, so we'll have to uh, wrap it up there. Thanks ever so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, cheers, Patrick. Always a pleasure, mate. And good luck to you guys. Thanks, buddy. Ta-da. 